painful sex, peeing when you sneeze, heavy menstrual bleeding, hemorrhoids, these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to crap women deal with after childbirth, surgery, or just living life as a woman. Yet no one talks about it. How can we live our best life as a woman, mom, partner, and athlete without having to settle for average sex or dirty pants? This is the question, and this podcast will dive into real answers. If you get offended easily, this is not the podcast for you. We get real, and sometimes real isn't pretty or proper. If you have young ones nearby, we suggest you put in headphones. We are Joss and Jenny, and welcome to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Before we get started, if you like what you hear, follow us on Instagram, at the Vagina Doc and at Pelvic Boxer. DM us and we will personally answer your questions. For this episode and all future episodes, please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended as general information only and should not be substituted or used in lieu of medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome back to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. Today we have a special episode on pelvic pain and Jenny and I have a special guest. His name is Dr. Berenberg. He is a urogynecologist out of Oklahoma who uh, is going to talk to us about marijuana or cannabis for pelvic pain. And this is something that I'm really excited to talk about because I get this question almost I mean, on a regular basis, and it's something that I'm familiar with, but not a ton. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Berenberg, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I hope it's okay if I call you Dr. B for short. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, spending time with us on your vacation. Sure thing. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. May I ask where you are, where you're vacationing? Uh, Yeah, I'm in Clearwater, Florida. Oh, is it just for fun, all fun, or do you have work out there too? No business this time, just hanging out. That's nice. I have to say, so I've been to Clearwater several times within in the past year, uh, and the the place is shut down at like 8 p.m. Yeah, I mean, there's some old people here, that's for sure. Uh, things shut down a little bit earlier than most places, but when you get towards the beach, there's a little bit more going on. Um, but when we go out, we tend to go into the city, into Tampa and, and do stuff there. So it's a little bit more lively. Do you have any family that lives down there? My parents retired here. So we okay. come and crash at their place. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So Dr. Berenberg, tell us a little bit about yourself and first off, how you came into the specialty of urogynecology. Sure. So, uh, I am, I guess now the third generation physician in my family, uh, my grandfather was a nephrologist that focused on kidney disease. My father's a GI doctor, so they were both internal medicine-based uh, docs. And when I went to medical school, I thought that was what I was going to do. Um, but what I noticed was while I was listening to the more medical-type lectures, I found myself disengaged. And then when the more surgical-type stuff popped up, I found myself re-engaged. Uh, and so I ended up in my clinical wards going through the surgical subspecialties. At that point, I knew I wanted to do something with my hands. Um, and then it came down to feeling where my personality fit best. Uh, and I think that that 
I kind of tended to drive, uh, jive better with the OBGYN crowd and the urogyn pelvic floor crowd than the general surgeons or the urologists. Um, and so from there, I, I just had a bunch of great mentors that kind of fostered my inter- interest in, uh, in gynecology. And then from there, when I moved to Chicago from South Texas, where I, I did my medical school at UTMB in Galveston. Um, and then from there, I moved to Chicago and went to Loyola University for my residency program. And at the time, uh, some of the biggest names in Eurogyne uh, were running the fellowship and running the department there. And so with that, they kind of really piqued my interest. And I got to see some really cool surgeries and learn quite a bit from them. And it just kind of spiraled from there. And then I moved to Oklahoma for fellowship, was uh, working at OU for three years. And then after my time at OU, I went and was employed at Baptist for two years and then stepped out on my own. And I've been in private practice now going on three years. Um, so really, really, I think it's just a, a personality thing, just finding kind of where, uh, where my groove was. And I feel like it, it was there helping uh, people with pelvic floor problems. What's your most manliest guy friends ask you? Oh, oh God. <laughs> I don't know if that's like uh a lot of, I mean, it's, it's the typical, like, broing down stuff. Um, usually, from my end, it ends with an eye roll, like, really? We're going to go there. I've heard that one before. Good try. But um, most of the time, I think they're just perplexed. They're like, the same question, like, how did you end up doing that of all things? Um, and you give them the story, and they're like, no, but really, like, how did you end up doing that? And so, um, but a Another big part of my practice is I do a lot of hormone replacement and complementary uh, medicine as well. And so uh, I, do, I still do see men for those I'll things. bet that that is. I find the hormone replacement stuff super interesting. And like when it comes to uh, just pelvic organ support and reconstructive surgeries, I can't help but n- really be curious about hormones because sure. of the molecule or like the composition of the tissues and and whatnot and how the people got there in the first place but it's cool that's cool and I know that a lot of guys have these pain conditions and don't even realize their testosterone is tanked but even I mean females too that their uh, hormone levels are just jacked right well and I would say that a lot of men don't realize they have pelvic floor issues too oh yeah um, I think we're really focused now as it's become more popular and in vogue to talk about it. You see women talking about pelvic floor at their yoga studio or Pilates or whatever. Um, you don't really hear men talking about it too much, but a lot of times they have the same issues, constipation, chronic pelvic pain, difficulty with sexual intercourse, all those things. Um, and so I think they're starting to listen more and more. Uh, and I think that a lot of the stuff we'll talk about today can bleed over to Uh, helping men as well so that is a great place to transitions and my next question around our next question is uh, what kind of pelvic pain conditions do you work with and how do you in your practice define pelvic pain sure I know the general definition but what what or what do you most commonly treat or what do you like to treat sure I mean we do the whole spectrum of gynecology so everything from you know, painful menses, 
to fibroid tumors that cause mass effect and pain from that to um, interstitial cystitis or chronic inflammatory condition of the bladder to levator spasm or, or muscle generated pain in the pelvic floor um, endometriosis we see a lot of you name it in the realm of the probably below the belly button and above the knees we kind of take care of all of that um, my specific specialty at least by training is urogynecology so i tend to focus more on pelvic floor disorders um levator spasm interstitial cystitis uh still get quite a bit of endometriosis but not as much as some other providers um what else and uh defecatory dysfunction constipation painful bowel movements things like that so get a ton of that that's kind of my focus but anything in gynecology that could generate pain, uh, I will address that as well. Um, and then how do we define pain in my clinic? Really, that's a really pretty esoteric question. Um, if somebody comes in and tells me they're in pain or something's bothering them, I, the first step is just to listen. I, that's all. <laughs> it's so easy. You just listen and let somebody walk you through their day-to-day -day activities and what makes it worse, what makes it better. And then you can sort of focus in on is it a pelvic floor issue or is it something completely unrelated? Um, so I don't have like a real rigid definition of what pelvic pain would be. My thought is if it bothers you, it bothers me. And then let's figure out what's going on. You really do fit into urogynecology, Dr. B. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, yeah. So tell us, um, I know I kind of saw some stuff that you were posting and I had reached out to you to get education from you on it, but I know that you um, do have a background in the use of cannabis for pelvic pain and not a lot of physicians that I've worked with are really jumping on this train or have knowledge about it. So tell us a little bit about how you got interested in it, how it works, what forms can you use it in, how you prescribe it um, and the like. Sure, yeah. So uh, in Oklahoma, when state question 788 passed for the medical uh, use of, of cannabis in the state, it kind of piqued my interest there. And just from being in the environment, uh, having people come for other issues, you know, multiple sclerosis or um, depression issues or other non-pelvic floor related things, uh, from writing cards and working through things with them, that in and of itself, I started thinking, wow, I bet there's an effect on the pelvic floor, right? Uh, and with that, um, I started to dig a little bit deeper and do a little bit of research. Now it's kind of crummy right now is there's not a ton of research that's directed at pelvic floor and cannabis use. So everything that we extrapolate comes from data around muscle spasticity in people with MS or neuromuscular disorders, um, there's one article that I could, I spent a good two, three weeks looking for articles. There's one article on overactive bladder and CBD that was showing promising, uh, effect. Um, there's a ton of data out there on chronic pain, especially neuropathic pain and the use of cannabis there, uh, like for fibromyalgia and, and uh, diabetic neuropathy, or, uh, yeah, neuropathy, things like that. But there was nothing directed at pelvic floor spasm or, anything of that nature. So the way I, I, what I tell people, like when I lectured at the university was I'm operating on this idea of biologic plausibility. So if there's a potential mechanism there, even if we don't understand it completely with a low uh, 
side effect profile and a low risk, then why not try to use that as a, as a tool in your tool belt to treat conditions that we see every day? So where I tend to use it most is pelvic floor spasm, interstitial cystitis, um, and both for pain treatment, but also to help these people sleep and some of the psychological stuff that comes along with having to deal with chronic pain for a long time. So it's kind of nice because you can almost globally treat the person with one plant, which is pretty cool. So I think it's pretty important to talk about the difference between CBD and, and cannabis or THC plants. So nationwide, uh, hemp plants or CBD plants are legal. So you can grow it, you can harvest it, you can turn it into oil or suppository or whatever and utilize it. The only difference between a CBD plant and a quote cannabis plant is an arbitrary demarcation made by the government. So if the plant has less than 0.3% THC, um, when they do the testing, they consider hemp. If it has more than that, it's considered cannabis and federally illegal. So the long and the short of it is they breed the plant to give you whatever compounds you need. Um, and then the important thing to think about is a lot of people use, still use a lot of street terms like marijuana or pot or strain. We're trying to reframe the dialogue around cannabis so that we can think of it more as a, as a useful tool or medicinal, uh, a medicinal thing. So we'd use the term cultivar or chemovar when it comes to talking about what plant we're, we're looking at. And the reason we do that is because each plant in and of itself will have unique characteristics and qualities that can be utilized for different conditions. So the most common cannabinoids that people talk about are THC or tetrahydrocannabinol. That's the, the one that people are associated with the high or the psychotropic effect. The second most common is CBD. And you see that at about every gas station in America right now. Um, and that does not have any psychotropic effect. It doesn't actually activate your cannabinoid receptors. It actually upregulates your own endogenous cannabinoids so that your, your own natural cannabinoids can attach to the receptors and amplify the effect. So it works very differently. Um, and then there's a bunch of other, there's 80 other compounds, things like terpenoids and flavonoids uh, that give the unique characteristic of the plant. So like, for instance, if you smell it, smell the plant, it, they all smell a little bit different. Some smell peppery, some smell more like lavender or pine and things like that. Each of those individual terpenes that give that odor provide a medicinal benefit. So for instance, like beta caryophylline is very good as a pain control. So it's also found in black pepper and curcumin and like that. And then you can look at linalool, which is very high in lavender. It has more of a calming and relaxing effect or myrcene that has more of a sedative effect. So you can actually find a plant that has the genetics built out for whatever condition you're trying to treat, which makes it much more interesting um, and able to be directed better for the patient. The hard part though is finding the plant First off, educating the patient to know which of those compounds they need to look for and then having that available for them when they need it. So one growth cycle comes and they harvest a bunch of plant, they're able to use it. The next time they go back to the dispensary, maybe it's not there. Um, and so it's a, it's a kind of a learning process for the patient as they walk through their cannabis journey. So a big piece of what I tell them is everything that you use write it down 
the situation in which you took it, the effect it had, what you liked, what you didn't like, so that when you go back to the dispensary to talk to those guys, uh, they can give you more guidance as to what's actually going to help you because you've already had a little bit of experience. You kind of start, start more um, global and then you slowly work your way back to a small local localized plant that will work best for you. Yeah. Do you ever get um, any, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you ever get any um, resistance from patients when you discuss this with them or do you feel people out before suggesting it? Uh, yes and yes. Yeah, I can kind of tell um, if, if my patients are more of a traditional Western medicine and they want to go down that road first. A lot of times we'll try to exacerbate those options before we get to the cannabis option anyways, or they've tried that and they've come from other physicians. Um, but it's interesting, the people that you would think uh, would be really reluctant to try it are not the ones that are reluctant to try it. Like when I get uh, my older patients in, you know, they're, a lot of them are, were around in the 60s and whatnot. It's so like, hey, this isn't my first rodeo. I already kind of know it works for me. It kind of catches me off guard. Like, okay, cool. And a lot of times they teach me stuff. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, it's kind of that, I would say, 40 to mid-50s age range with the war on drugs and all the propaganda around uh, cannabis is bad, gateway drug, et cetera. They're, I think, really ingrained in that uh, culture that they were brought up in. And so that's been uh, a little bit more difficult to educate, to try to break the propaganda and show them the power of what's in front of them and how safe it is for the most part. How do you control how much or how much do, does one know how much to take? Yeah, so, so that... And because yeah. you could just, I could just imagine someone get an edible Correct. and they're like, oh, this isn't doing anything. And then they eat the whole thing. Right. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, in reality, the, the state, for some reason, expects the kids that work at the dispensary to tell my patients what they're supposed to use. And I'm really supposed to like not say a whole lot about that. Um, oddly enough, I don't quite understand why it's laid out that way. But there's some general rules. Um, in general, I tell them to start low and go slow. Um, don't ask for the most potent thing in the room you know, that you don't need that. If you're going to do an edible, I think the smallest amount you can get is about a five milligram edible. Some of them have a two and a half milligram edible. So I tell them start as low as you can find, uh, take it and then give yourself about 30 to 45 minutes to let it absorb. And if you still don't notice anything, then take a little bit more and you keep working your way through that until you kind of find your effective dose. The, the good thing though, is that you can reverse the, if you get totally, you know, inebriated on cannabis, um, I tell them to keep CBD nearby. So you can dose the CBD under the tongue and it'll bring all the psychotropic aspect and take it down, but it won't snuff out the medical benefit that the patients can get. So there is a little bit of a, a safety check there too that, that can be used. Um, edibles, I think, are a little bit, if you find one edible that you like and you're working through it, you can pretty much expect that to be consistent every time you purchase from them so it's a little bit easier to dose 
when it comes to veining or the raw flour or anything like that, um, really, it, since you're having to take a drag off of it, it's almost like you're, you're able to medicate and then when it's too much, your hand falls away. You know what I mean? So uh, your body, just you just kind of know. I don't know how else to put that. There's, it, it, it kind of sucks because there's no great guideline for it. There's no way to know what, what your dose is versus what my dose is versus what Jenny's dose is. You know, just yeah. say, you just got to start somewhere. Do you ever worry about patients having drug interactions with the other medications they're taking? Or is that something that you screen for pretty thoroughly before suggesting this for somebody? Yeah, I do. Um, the big ones would be blood thinners like warfarin. So you want to be careful with that. And then I always ask them, are you on any medications that your physician uh, told you uh, don't take with grapefruit? You know, there's a big, big screening thing that a lot of primary care docs will use. Hey, you can't use this if you're drinking citrus or grapefruit. Um, There's also some websites you can go to on Google. If you type in a cannabis drug interaction calculator, and you can put whatever your medication is and then you can just type in cannabis with that and it'll tell you the potential interactions there. So um, a majority of the time, the things you, like general rules, don't mix with opiates. Obviously that can be sedating. Don't mix with things that would be otherwise sedating like benzodiazepines or gabapentin if you're on that for, for pain or neuropathic pain, um, sleeping medications, things of that nature. I also warn patients who, have, if they have any kind of psychologic conditions like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, that that's a really, um, that's a gray area. If they're having, if they're not stable, then I don't recommend it at all. Um, but if they are stable and they're not having schizophrenic breaks or anything like that, then I very much so caution them because that can worsen things. How about low blood pressure? Low blood pressure. Honestly, I haven't seen a lot of things out there that show that cannabis affects blood pressure. I know some people tout certain uh, cultivars as being good for metabolic processes like you know, diabetes or high blood pressure, uh, but I haven't seen that hash out for people that are actually using that for that to the point where it's dropping their, ple- their pressure super low. Okay. Um, so if, say... I have a patient that wants to start take start taking cannabis or a type of cannabis for their pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you suggest this person fi- to find a healthcare provider that is open to, I don't know if you would call it like prescribing it, recommending it. Yeah. Recommending. The state's funny with that term. They don't like to use the term prescribe, but they're very okay with using um, recommend. I don't know. Um, the place I would go first is omma.ok.gov. That's the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority. They have a listing of physicians that have actually um, signed up to be on their list. So you don't have to be registered with the state to write cards, but you can. And so when everything came live, I made it a point to be very forward, cannabis forward with what I do, make myself available, that way people can find me. Um, And then now I think it's been around for a year and a half, so a lot of the docs that are on the front lines, um, they know who is doing it, and so they know where to make that recommendation to. So I think the key is to ask your primary care doctor or your general GYN or pain management specialist 
who do you recommend I go to see for this um, that would be reputable? Are there any websites for people that don't live in Oklahoma? So Jocelyn's actually in Arizona. So I feel very lucky because I'm right down the street from you. But, um, I, you know, I don't know what the availability is for other healthcare providers and for patients to reach out to physicians in other states. Yeah, I, I usually send people to leafly.com. It tends to be a pretty balanced uh, resource for information on cannabis. And they have, I believe they have state-specific um, like drop downs. So if you're trying to figure out how to get a card in Arizona, you could go there and it would walk you through it. Uh, and then there's another organization I believe called normal that has all the state laws as well. Um, I don't know if they list providers there, but at least it'll get you going down that road of what's actually happening in my state as, uh, the cannabis kind of the green rush spreads across the United States. There's more and more and more States coming live. You know, Arkansas had a program before Oklahoma did, but they just now got their first dispensary opened about three or four months ago. So not all states work as quickly as, as our state has. And Arizona's actually had a program for a number of years, I believe. Um, not to get off track of what we're currently talking about, but what would you recommend in with people that are on a ton of gabapentin or opiates as it is, into transitioning from those meds to cannabis because if you, you don't want to take them both, but there are some side effects of stopping to stopping opiates or gabapentin. Yeah, so you would just do like a, a cross titration type deal. So you don't want to decrease more than 10% a week. And so you'll start using a little bit of the cannabis and you'll drop your opiate or your benzo uh, or your gabapentin by about 10%. And then you slowly do that. And then you'll find kind of where your sweet spot is. Maybe you can get off all the way. Maybe you can't. But at least you can decrease your, your uh, requirement. And I've seen that work pretty well for people. A lot of people are able to get off of, of those more addicting drugs. Now, like talking about addiction, a lot of people say, well, you're switching one addiction or one medication for another. What's the point? You're still on something. My point is that the addiction rate for opiates is like 40%. The addiction rate for cannabis is about 7%. So you can use it for quite some time while you're working through whatever it is you're working through and then stop. And it's not an issue. Um, yeah. And it's safer because the brain has, the brainstem has no cannabinoid receptors. So you can't overdose on it. You can feel sick and feel really terrible from taking too much, but it's not going to kill you. Wow, Dr. Berenberg, this has been some wonderful information. So if people want to reach out to you or get more information, um, I, I just want to plug um, for you. I know you are the chief medical officer of the Lady Patch as well. Um, yeah. and so if people want to find out more about that, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at, at Dr. B spelled out uh, underscore OKC. Uh, you can visit me on the on our website, www.optimalhealthassociates.com. Uh, if you live in Oklahoma City and you want to talk more about cannabis or any other pelvic floor female health problem, you need an appointment, you can call our office at 405-715-4496. If you're interested in Lady Patch, I post a lot on Instagram there and Facebook. Um, you can also go to www.ladypatch.com. Great. And we'll make sure that we put all that in the show notes as well. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. B. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation, very enlightening, um, and hopefully our audience will enjoy it as much as we did. And we hope that you have a great rest of your vacation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.